Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Homecoming Podcast. Homecoming is a platform that provides the space for Asians, Asian Americans, and mixed heritage Asians of all backgrounds to share their stories, experiences, and insights about a variety of different topics. Everything from affirmative action to transracial adoption to diversity in pageantry. I'm your host, Angel Rena, and today on Homecoming, I'm here with Mariko Rooks, a senior at Yale University, majoring in the history of science, medicine, and public health, and doubling in ethnicity, race, and migration. And she is also a dual Master of Public Health candidate at the Yale School of Public Health in the Social and Behavioral Sciences. She is also involved with a number of organizations like USA Water Polo, the Japanese American Citizens League, and Changing Women, and more. And today she's going to be talking about her Black, Yonsei, and Asian American identities, her research and thesis work in public health, and her work in all of these organizations that I mentioned above. And I've actually been wanting to connect with Mariko for so long, so I am very, very, very excited to finally have this opportunity to talk to and get to know Mariko better. So, hello. First, making sure, did I get everything right up there on <laughs> the info? Oh my gosh, yes. Wow. I'm, I'm, I major in so many things with such long names, so I barely remember them, so props for you to you <laughs> for being able to do that as well. Yes. No Hello. Worries. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. Yes. Um, so my name is Mariko. I use she or null slash neutral pronouns. I am from Los Angeles, California, but currently I'm living in New Haven off campus. And of course, as you mentioned, I go to Yale with a lot of different majors happening there. Um, and I identify as a mixed race, black and Japanese American person in the world. Uh, yeah, I think you pretty much covered everything I'm currently involved with. I'm in Trumbull College, uh, which is a great college, go Trumbull. And I am just really excited to chat with you today on a number of different things, all things race and public health, and you know, maybe a little bit about me too. Mm -hmm. So that sounds awesome. Yay. Thanks, Mariko. Yeah. Thank you so much again for being a guest. And yeah, we've definitely got a lot to talk about because I know <laughs> you're just involved with so much and it's honestly so impressive. So I'm very oh, excited no, to no, get no, into no. everything. <laughs> yeah but you know it all it all ends up relating in the end somehow mm -hmm. but yes absolutely let's let's get into it sounds good yeah so we've definitely got a lot but I know like in our pre-recording meeting you mentioned that you also wanted to um you know first talk about the anti-Asian hate crimes that have been happening and um your episode is the only one I've recorded after, like, I personally started hearing about, like, the bulk of the incidents. So I definitely think, like, this is a great opportunity for, you know, both of us to, like, address it, debrief together. Yeah, so, you know, how have you been feeling after reading about, hearing about all of these different anti-Asian hate crimes and violence? And, you know, like, what are what are your thoughts? What are you thinking? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, 2020 slash 2021 hasn't been a year and change. That's been easy for anyone. But I think as someone who is both Asian American and Black, there's been a lot of weight that's certainly been carried by both communities and for folks who identify with, uh, you know, both identities because of 
all of the sort of bodily violence that we've been seeing that's been made clear and visible in ways that it often has not been before due to sort of everything that's going on right now. And I think, you know, it points to a much longer history of these trends happening, of, of, of course, Asian Americans being seen as perpetually foreign, as being seen as also having that foreignness explicitly tied to disease is not a new phenomenon. We've seen that since the late 1800s and early 1900s, when you have ethnic specific quarantines in San Francisco's Chinatown, because it was believed that, you know, Asian American folks were just, were spreading disease that way to the detention of folks on Ellis Island and on Angel Island to, um, to even sort of the ways in which fashion and gender and cultural expression were being policed as being identified as disease, both in terms of sort of mental retardation or being seen as sort of backwards and like not mentally developed in specific ways um, because folks weren't conforming to Western society and Western standards, but also of being sites of disease so that the Asian body and in particular distinctly like culturally and ethnically Asian expressions of being and expressions of self were also being identified as sources of disease and disease spread. One really good example is um, like Chinese men, the longer sort of traditional braids or key that are used um, that, that folks wear, like those were cut off under sort of the auspices of, you know, that they were a hub for disease and germs. So it, it's not a new phenomenon, but I think the really important thing to recognize is one, it really it really challenges the model minority myth, right? Like you can't continue to be white adjacent. You can't pretend that like we ha- we are the minority that has quote unquote succeeded and that is, you know, better than the other minorities because clearly white America isn't going to love you, isn't going to accept you, nor is that something you should be seeking in the first place because the second that something happens that will make you seem foreign again, that will become once again more prominent. And I think also the, the thing to take away from this too is to address the root problems of this um, and to not immediately resort to using the carceral system, to using the police, to engaging in other forms of law enforcement related anti-blackness as a result of these attacks, which is something that I saw that was incredibly unsurprising, but very disheartening, even from like a lot of really high profile Asian Americans uh, in the entertainment industry who you know, are, are such role models for our community. Because I think whenever you see sort of what we call horizontal or lateral violence between communities of color and the Black and Asian communities certainly have a contentious history of this, right? The root is never each other. The root is always the way that white supremacy plays our communities against each other in opposition because they recognize the power that we have together. So... Those are my current thoughts, but it's definitely, it's a lot to carry. It's a lot to, it's a lot to cope with, to deal with. Um, But, you know, through finding community, I think we can support each other. Yeah, that's, but I don't know. Yeah, I think I've also been, been seeing a lot of people on social media, like a lot of quote unquote, like Asian role models, like, I don't know, just like praising different corporations for like releasing, you know, statements on oh like we condemn these attacks etc etc and like I don't know like that's sort of what also happened um you know after like George Floyd's murder and I don't know it's like 
It's very performative. It's yeah, it's performative and it's like tough to be like, oh, I mean, what what other what more can you what more can you do or say? I don't know. Exactly. Because because people will condemn racism until it requires until other people's liberation requires the dismantlement of systems that traditionally benefit the oppressor. So if you are an oppressor, right, releasing a statement, no impact, right? Actually having to materially redistribute your resources and your profits that you've gotten from exploiting all of these different communities, that's something that can, you know, quote unquote, hurt you. In the long run, what what liberates some of us is what's going to liberate all of us, right? What liberates the most oppressed of us will liberate everyone. But in the short term, right, oh, we're losing money, oh, you know, blah, 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 capitalism. So... I think that's definitely something that that's a short version of that. Right. Um, but I think that's definitely something that we will see time and time again. And I think growing up in a sort of like liberal bubble where that was the norm, um, it's certainly nothing new to me, but it's always annoying when it happens. Yeah. I mean, it's clear that you've obviously thought about, you know, intersections of race and like, colonialism, you know, systems of power for a really long time. And I think that's sort of like a broader theme of the work you do and the projects that you pursue, right? Um, And I definitely want to get into um, like who you are and your childhood and, you know, growing up in California, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I think my first question to you um, would be like, if you would be able to share your family's history and just your overall journey of, you know, trying to reconcile with and understand your Black and Japanese and Asian American identities, that would be amazing. I know it's a pretty big question, but, you know, feel free to take it where you want. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I'll try to keep this as concise as possible because, you know, it's easy to talk about our families and where we come from indefinitely, especially when so much of that history is denied to us. Uh, But I think really the best way to sort of understand me and to understand my family is to start with my grandparents. And so um, I, I, like most people, have four biological grandparents. And so on my mom's side, um, we'll start with my grandfather on my mom's side. So my maternal grandfather. Uh, That story is a very classic Japanese American story. He was the son of a farming family. And after, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act in America, there was a large demand for farm-related labor. And so Japan became the new market for migration to the United States to fill that migrant labor uh, migrant labor need and worked out sort of in favor of those conditions because in Japan at the time, the laws were that if you were not the oldest son, you got no land. So there were a lot of second and third and fourth sons of farmers who were migrating over um, and then, you know, their wives were brought over as well. And so those, those are the generation that we call the Ise. And then my grandfather being one of their children is what we call a Nise. So Nise were born in America to the ch- and they were children of immigrants. And my grandfather, you know, grew up, right, sort of poor farming agricultural family, uh, lots of siblings, and then all of, almost all of whom were incarcerated during World War II. And so my grandfather's family was incarcerated in Amachi, Colorado. My grandfather was then drafted into the 442nd, which was the all-Japanese-American uh, U.S. regiment that fought for the United States during World War II. Um, you were 
you were essentially required to fight for the United States, of course, right, being the country that imprisoned you unless, and if you dissented, you were put into like a special camp. And so my grandfather was, um, though he like got out of the draft for a couple of years, apparently by working on a pickle farm, which I found out very recently, uh, but you know, eventually went into the, went into the military um, towards the end of the war, spent some time in Europe afterwards, and then received his GI Bill, which was granted to Japanese American soldiers after the war, went to college, became a became an engineer that worked with a lot of early radar and sonar systems, um, which is kind of ironic because some of that was missile guidance. And so it's interesting to reflect on the sort of role in perpetrating, right, a lot of these like militaristic systems that, you know, were oppressive to him and to our community at large. Uh, but nevertheless, right, did a lot of that. And then met my grandmother. And so my grandmother is also Nisei, but she's what we call Kibe. And that's not talked about as much in the Japanese American community. And so what that means is she was born in the US, but then moved back to Japan and was actually trapped there during World War II with most of her family. And so we tend to in the US not hear the stories of people who are enemies of our state in a sympathetic light ever, right? Because we're sort of... um, Victors get to make history, but also victors, particularly the United States with such a sort of moral stance on quote unquote freedom, right, wants to portray the wars that we've been in as wars of freedom. But the ocu- the bombing and then subsequent occupation of Japan by the United States was um, in a word horrific. And so I think in terms of the amount of like trauma my grandmother suffered from that, especially as someone who is in the reverse position of my grandfather, where everyone in Japanese thinks she, Japan thinks she's American, right? Um, was definitely really tough on her and her family, but she was able to come back after the war and they met. Um, my mom is what we call sanse or third generation. And so grew up in the Japanese American community, which is really centered in a lot of intergenerational institutions. So everything from Japanese American preschool to, uh, you know, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, all those kinds of things. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in my own experience. So that's my mom's side. And then on my dad's side, this is going to be the longest answer. I'm so sorry. Um, But on my dad's side, my grandfather is generationally American Black or African American, which means that, um, you know, we, our ancestors were enslaved and brought over and then such and such and such continuing onwards. Um, And so my the black side of my family there's a lot of preachers and teachers I think that's the best way to put it um so lots of people who talk a lot and teach a lot and think a lot about learning and I think that's been really fortunate uh not the whole family of course but that's definitely the line going down um but my grandfather was actually a medic in the U.S. Army so career military and so he served three tours in Vietnam but was also sent to Japan during the post-World War II occupation which is where he met my grandmother on my dad's side, who was, you know, born in Japan, living in Japan, was working at a U.S. military base, and they got married and moved to Kansas. Yeah, and then my parents met. They had me. I am an only child. I was born in San Jose, so that's up north uh, in California, and we moved to the Los Angeles area when I was three, in large part because my parents wanted me to be involved with the Japanese American community as it exists still today. So growing up, I went to Japanese American Buddhist preschool. That was a thing that I went to. And then, um, you know, joined Girl Scouts, uh, Japanese American Buddhist summer camp, Buddhist sleepaway camp. 
also Japanese American like Christian summer camp too um, because my dad is Christian my mom is Buddhist and so continued that through middle school through high school um, once I got to high school there also is this an amazing organization called Kizuna which focuses on Japanese American leadership development and teaching us more about our history getting us more involved in little Tokyo specifically which is like a center historically of sort of Japanese American community that is, you know, constantly facing ongoing battles against gentrification and other things like that. So um, just really getting youth invested and involved in the community and understanding their own identity more. And so, yeah, that's really continued all through the rest of my life. And it's a really wonderful sort of feedback system um, and that you continue to be involved in the same things as you get older. So like the sleepaway camp that I went to when I was little, I'm a counselor at now, that kind of thing. And I'm really, really grateful for that experience. Um, but I think also that, of course, right, being Black in that space, you know, does come with some sort of challenges and its own forms of navigation. Um, a lot of it is very subliminal. Like, it's not that, I mean, you know, every community has its people, but right, for the most part, it's not people aggressively being like anti-Black, especially because among the older generation, a lot of Japanese folks, Japanese American folks and Black folks grew up together um, in the 60s and 70s because that's how segregated housing worked in Los Angeles. So um, the communities have a lot of sort of historical roots pre-model minority. Um, but has definitely always been something that, I'm, that, I, that I was sort of aware of, just especially in terms of how I looked. Um, and the things that I would sort of think about or talk about. So, uh, but overall has been a really wonderful and grounding experience. And the one thing I can say about Zoom that's been great is I've been able to be more involved with the Japanese American community via Zoom, like, you know, in California, whereas before I was unable to do as much of that at Yale. And then, yeah, but I think, you know, really my dad, being a professor who thought a lot about what it meant to be mixed has given me, I'm just so privileged to be able to, have that in my life from day one, to have that be a conversation that was happening at the dinner table to make sure that there was mixed race representation in my bedtime stories, right? That I was getting access to the histories of both of these communities and that we were, you know, unpacking all of the weird things that come with being mixed, right? Like uh, the, the people at the grocery store who don't know you and have never met you, but will ask you, what are you without any hesitation? Um, you know, that kind of stuff being able to work throughout on a daily basis, but also being able to meet other mixed race folks. There's like a whole group of them that are really all like non-biological extended family. Um, and they're all like professors who do this kind of work. And so all the kids are friends. Those are all like my cousins and stuff. Um, and so I've been really grateful for all of those spaces so far. Um, yeah, I think, I think that pretty much sums up my family's history. That, that, that's that, but yes. Thank you to whoever's listening to that 10-minute summary. <laughs> no, that's totally great. And thank you so much for saying all of that. Honestly, like there's there's so much to talk about, but I'm just I'm I'm very impressed and I'm I'm really glad that you sort of have that knowledge of like your family history and that you have that familial support and background and that community um in California too of like, you know, Japanese Japanese American people and then like that community of mixed race people as well. Um, I'm also curious to hear a little bit more about, um, you know, the transition from exploring race and your identity in California 
to thinking about these issues when you came to Yale? How do you feel like you thought about your identity differently, thought about race and racism differently? Yeah, absolutely. So I think when it comes to sort of the Black community at Yale, it was one of the big reasons why I actually chose Yale as a school. Um, I was a recruited athlete in high school, and so I had been looking at playing softball at a couple of different places, but I actually chose in large part to turn down some of those offers in order to go to Yale because I saw how strong the Black community was here and how supported I would be and how structured it was, right, in terms of the resources, having the Afro-American Cultural Center. Um, and also because, like, by, by not coincidence, because my mom told me to go into her group, but my, my tour guide at Yale when I was a sophomore in high school was really involved in the Black community here. And so that was just, like, sort of a natural segue into that. So big shout out to Grace, um, you know, and she and then the people I met through her were sort of really vocal in making that decision. So I think, you know, in high school, the way that things sort of worked, again, I mentioned briefly, it was a very sort of Obama-era post-racial liberal bubble. And also, like, my high school is technically the fourth most diverse high school in the United States. So there was this sort of general, like, contention that racism didn't exist, which made it, of course, but of course it did. And so it ended up with just sort of a lot of a lot of gaslighting mostly. Um, But what ended up happening is that a lot of behaviors that I think, you know, are coded as, as black, quote unquote. So um, things like uh, that are are attributed to being black as if blackness is not more complicated than this, but things like, you know, being loud or being assertive or challenging, you know, authority, um, the way that you look, the way you dress, the music you listen to, and AVE or African American vernacular English was huge in that. Um, you know, it was it was absolutely sort of a marker there. But all of those things were sort of coded as being just not intelligent. Like if if you were all of those things, then you weren't smart. And there was an it, there was and is an incredible amount of exclusion of Black and Brown kids from the AP or like accelerated honors programs at my high school. Um, like I was the only black kid in a lot of my classes, again, despite it being right, this supposedly diverse place. And so I very much felt that like any kind of blackness I had was incredibly sort of policed. And I was lucky in all of that because I had the privilege to code switch and had the privilege, you know, in part because I was mixed, but also just in part because of who my parents were, that I could be removed from some of that and still academically succeed. But going into college, it was so revolutionary for me to say like, oh, there. There isn't an either or here. And in fact, you know, unapologetically loving and engaging with Black culture and Black identity and Black community in ways that like aren't being sort of prescribed by whiteness as acceptable or what we call like respectability politics was was a huge revelation for me and just was not something I could have ever imagined existing. And so Really, during Cultural Connections, I saw that a lot, um, which is a pre-orientation program for, you know, um, marginalized folks on campus. And and I'm just so grateful for that. I think, right, every community has its politics. I think um, Black folks are still wrestling with what it means to be in community with Asian American folks in a way that doesn't feel like an oppression Olympics or like we are more oppressed or like they're more oppressed or Um, Because, right, Asian Americans have done, including on campus, have done their share of damage, right, in terms of anti-Blackness. So I think that's a thing to wrestle with still. I also think for me personally, colorism became more of an issue in college because 
in high school, I was playing water polo for, you know, 15 hours a week and then also playing softball for however many hours a week. And so I, I looked phenotypically black, like I was mixed, but like I was very clearly black. Um, but that's not the case here. And my like melanin content, which is right, the thing that controls how dark your skin is, um, is not actually that high, which I just didn't know because I'd always sort of been outside. So I look significantly more Asian here and being East Asian is more unusual in New Haven than it is to be black because New Haven is right predominantly black and brown. So I think the way that I experience race and also the way in which I'm like policed and also not policed in this space um, is very different here Uh, and also changes from time to time. Like when I come back from winter break, uh, you know, and I am darker it's just so interesting to see how that changes over the course of two or three months when it's January and February here, because I get treated incredibly differently. Um, But yeah. And I think on the Asian American side, I think, you know, I'm really grateful for the fact that Yale moved me out of just thinking of myself as Japanese American and better understanding what it means to be Asian American and how to build strong coalitions from an identity that's centered in in Asian Americanness, because obviously the Japanese American community at Yale, right, looks nothing like it does in California. It's pretty small. And it's a lot of folks who are, you know, Japanese national, which is what we say when like your parents like just migrated from Japan. So, but the AACC and the Asian American community more broadly, um, you know, really allowed me to sort of make connections and also own up to, I think, the, the privilege of East Asian folks and also Japan's history of imperialism, right, when it comes to South and Southeast Asia. But I'm really grateful for that. And I think I've made a lot of really wonderful Asian American friends um, through that process. So, um, and of course the academic part of Yale, right? Between history of science and ethnicity, race and migration, getting to really sort of think about these things, be validated in these things, um, not feeling like I have to justify why I care about those things and why they're important. So I give all of the props and respect in the world to the people that like fought for these programs to exist and um, especially for ERNM and who continue making that happen today. Awesome. Yeah, I'm also considering a double major in ERNM and I like all the classes that I've taken so far. Do it. That's what people have been take, telling me. Like I have a lot of friends in ERNM and they're, you know, really they plug the major. So I'm I'm pretty sure I'm going to double in ERNM because all the classes I've taken so far have been really, really amazing and like mind-blowing. So, yeah. Absolutely. And just sort of thinking about it, it's like, you know, wouldn't these be the classes that you take anyways, right? Right. Like your free extra distributional classes. So, yeah. Um, I was actually kind of like not skeptical, but, you know, because my dad also is an ethnic studies professor, I was like, there's no way I'm studying ethnic studies in college. Like, like that's, that's not me. That's not who I am. I'm my own person. And I care about public health. I mean, race and public health, but it's public health first. And then when you know, the protests happened in the fall of 2019. Um, I was a sophomore. I was involved in those because of the ASA 50th anniversary celebration, which happened around that time. Um, and that was where the big protest was. And I was performing that night with Juke Songs, uh, this, the spoken word group here at Yale, the Asian American spoken word group. And so I was involved in those, in those protests and being able to be part of that really made me say like, okay, if we're going to fight for this, one, I should take some ERNM classes um, because we didn't do all that work for nothing, but also really seeing the value of the program and the ways in which it's more broad emphasis on migration, especially, can really decenter um, the nation state in really important and powerful ways in understanding how we relate to each other and what community looks like. 
Yeah. All good things to say about ERM. I'm also plugging it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I'm also curious to learn more about, um, you know, you, you kind of talked about this, like, you know, how you're involved in a lot of the same like Japanese American communities and organizations and stuff like that, uh, that you did when you were growing up. But um, yeah, can you also talk about some organizations and projects that you've been involved with, um, like within the Black and Japanese American communities on and off campus? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, with the Japanese American community, um, I took a little bit of a break um, with my involvement. Maybe it was really sort of my like sophomore, junior year of college, just because it's really difficult to go back and forth, especially when most of my friends were all going to the same state schools in California. We're all doing the same like Japanese American student union, which is called like NSU or Nikkei student union there. And so I took a little bit of a break, but coming back more now is like, a kind of adult, like a fake adult, a young adult. Um, I think the big things that I'm more involved with on the LA side are, um, and in the California side, uh, I work with some of the Japanese American sort of Buddhist institutions. One of the new things that is being developed by like my wonderful friend Devin is uh, the Young Buddhist Editorial, which seeks to sort of center Asian American, Japanese American stories of folks who are also Buddhist because that's such a huge part of like cultural identity for us. Um, because, you know, being involved in Buddhist temple, which I have been since I was little, um, and my temple is called Senshin is a huge part of the way that we learn about our culture because so many of the holidays, so many of the, even what we chant and like what we talk about is in Japanese or is related to Japan, Japanese culture, Japanese Americanness in some way, shape or form. So everything from learning how to wear like traditional clothing to, eating traditional foods, all of that is sort of incorporated into also practicing Buddhism. And that's, there are also Japanese American Christian churches, then you get like, you know, a different experience, but also right are an avenue into cultural identity. But for me, being involved in temple is something that's been really important to me for a long time. So now getting to write about it actively and teach workshops and do that kind of development stuff has been really cool. Although I'm definitely less involved than the people who are really running that organization. Um, yeah. And then I do, you know, a number of like speaking related things um, when something comes up that's in my wheelhouse, which is always exciting. Uh, Nikkei Progressives, which is a sort of advocacy group based out of Little Tokyo, is um, a group that I'm a part of. And they have like, you know, monthly things and specific campaigns going on to support different issues that crop up. Right. Um and then the thing that I do that's a little more national and a little less LA-centric is uh, the Japanese American Citizens League, or JACL. And I actually wanted, you know, I had sort of known that they existed. Obviously, like, there are connections with a lot of other organizations, but hadn't ever been too personally involved because really the JACL is a national organization, and a lot of its programming is designed for folks that don't have as much access to um, what we call an ethnic enclave community. And so... This works out well on the East Coast, right? Because that's that's sort of the position that I'm in was just saying, you know, I love the Asian American work that's being done at Yale and regionally, but yeah, I, I just miss, you know, I miss Japanese American stuff. And so I'm on their National Student and Youth Council, which basically puts on programming for youth, you know, that are around our age. Um, and I'm in I'm the Eastern District representative, so it's focused on youth in the Northeast. So if you're hearing this and you're Japanese, Japanese American in the Northeast, Shoot me an email, hit me up. 
Um, we have some exciting programming planned. Gary Okihiro will be involved. Um, there's also going to be fun stuff. So yeah. Uh, or if you're just interested in engaging with the Japanese American community, you don't have to be Japanese. Um, please let me know, DM me. Uh, but yeah, so that's been really cool and really exciting and a better way to sort of write, also learn about like the, the rich and important history of Japanese Americans who aren't in California when that California narrative is so dominant. Um, so that's been cool. All cool Japanese American stuff um, in the black community. Uh, I would say it's been more relegated to campus in some ways. Um, black Solidarity Conference, uh, which you know I've been on the board of for four years, has been a really big part of my experience here. Um, working for the house as well for a year and a half uh, before I became a senior and disinvested from everything. Um, and also cultural connections as well. Uh, I would say that more broadly, recently, it's actually been the stuff with with water polo because it's been the other Black folks who play water polo that I've really found a community with, um, you know, in sort of more recent efforts to to uh, diversify, decolonize water polo as well. And so I've been really grateful for that too. And of course, my family and things like that as well. Nice. Yeah, Mariko, you're you're such an impressive person, man. Like you're doing such great things. It's cool. Like it it's it's I literally just miss Udon. Like it's inspirational. It, I'm like, man, I have to get my shit together. Oh no, not at all. And like also I will say, and this is a thing I would really emphasize for Yale students, is that, you know, there's such a culture of doing a lot all the time. And in a way that just sort of makes you feel like you're not doing enough if you're not doing as much as a person B seems to be doing, right? Number one, I don't do anything on a daily basis. I am my only goal right now is to make my way through the 1K drama that I'm watching. And, and that's that's right, like on a day-to-day, that's not like that's what I'm doing, let's be honest. Um, especially during quarantine. But also too that, right, um, you know, it's 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 it for me has been a, a nice balance of seeking out opportunities, but also if you keep doing work that you believe in and keep talking about and engaging with things that matter to you, that make you fired up, that like make you want to get up in the morning, the opportunities will come, right? And I think the best opportunities in my life, almost all of them have been that kind of organic building, um, which is not to say don't go for like, go for things, go for things, take all the money, right? Like, take all the advantages of all the opportunities you have, but also, yeah, like this, the, the opportunities will come. The opportunities will come. Thanks Mariko. I definitely, I definitely need like the senior wisdom to be passed down, (laughs) (laughs) but um, yeah, I get to be old now, which is great. (laughs) Yeah. Second semester senior, but then you're, you'll, you're doing, you're going to do your master's, but yeah, you talked about, um, water polo. And I think we can, you know, sort of transition into the work that you do uh, with USA Water Polo. Yeah. So would you be able to talk a little bit about like when you started playing, you know, your experience with the sport and like as you were growing up and even now, like what are some of the biggest diversity and access issues that you see within the sport? Yeah, absolutely. So I started playing water polo the summer after my eighth grade year. And it was actually, honestly, mostly because my mom made me do it. No, it was completely because my mom made me do it. Basically, right, I had been swimming since I was little, and I had done sort of the club swimming thing for a while, and I hated it, like, with my whole heart. I just wanted to play softball. And so I 
yeah, I, <laughs> I really didn't want to play water polo. And my mom said, you know, there's like a local summer program that's run by the high school. Just try it out. If you hate it after the summer, you never have to go back again. So I go, I do my little like prove I can sort of swim thing. Um, and there's like this Argentinian man who's watching me, like old guy who's like watching me swim. And I get out of the water and he goes, ah, yes. Okay. So you'll be with us for the next four years. And I was like, what? <laughs> He's like, sorry. Um, I really thought this was a six week thing. And even then I was like still trying to get out of going to practice every day, but I had somehow accidentally ended up on the water polo team at my high school. And I'm so grateful for my mom because even though I hated it that first summer and was constantly drowning all the time um, and, you know, wasn't naturally very good at this at all. Uh, you know, I, st I stuck with it through the fall and ended up really, really loving it. And I think a large part of that was the environment that was created at my high school. And so my program at the program at my high school is run by an intergenerational family of, yeah, Argentinian coaches. Um, they're both named Nestor. So it's a father and a son and they're both named Nestor. And they're just, they run a really wonderful program, especially given the fact that we don't actually have a like pool that belongs to our school. We use the local city pool. And it was everything from just one, I think, knowing that sports are more than just a game, right? They're a community for people. They are a place sort of where you can go to figure yourself out when so many things are changing and you're changing so much in high school as well. Um, but also being really mindful of cultivating a space that was pretty bi POC and queer friendly. Um, like both coaches are bilingual, which helps a lot, which means that like, yeah, all the Spanish words I know are things that I was yelled at <laughs> that were yelled at me during <laughs> games when I messed up. Um, but I think that made the, the sport much more accessible. There was, there is, and there was and is a large Latinx population um, at my high school that plays water polo. And I think that's a huge part of that. And I also think that attracts other communities too, just because, yeah, that was really foregrounded in, in their approach and they're great, great coaches, great program. And so for me, water polo was always really an escape because I was being recruited actually for softball. So water polo was the fun sport. Water polo was the place where I go, to go, where I didn't need to think, where I didn't have to worry about sort of the academic pressure, um, where I wasn't being sort of perceived by white people um, very strongly. And also, I think, was a place where gender for me and sexuality for me were a little bit more comfortable because I think my high school softball program was just sort of very built into the culture. It was both very cisgender and very sort of heteronormative. Um, not that everyone was straight, but like that was the culture of the program. And I think water polo, um, especially with just the friends that I have that are now also like the the queer and non-cis friends that I've kept through college, um, you know, it was, it was in that way a much more comfortable environment for me and actually was where I first started thinking about like my own queerness and my own sort of gender identity too, because I had a lot of older friends that were modeling that. So I have, yeah. And so then in college, I ended up playing water polo, didn't, again, didn't expect to be, but ended up playing water polo. And, and that was tough because it was, a it, Yale's program is still predominantly white, um, though it's gotten better in recent years. And I think in part of that, it's because like, BIPOC folks have come on and actively tried to make that environment more hospitable. The coaching we had our first year was also pretty white. And so a lot of the high school politics sort of came back into the pool. And it was really tough. Uh, my first year was really tough. And especially because I was expecting to play softball, and I wasn't playing softball. And I was doing this instead. Um, 
it wasn't easy. There's also like a large class barrier in water polo. So it was just tough being, you know, like one of the few people who was on financial aid and people would say like, oh, we're going out to eat or we're doing this. And I would be like, yeah, but that's half my paycheck for this week and you don't have to work. And so that was something I really struggled with. Um, But our team is still really queer. So that was nice. And I think, but it was something that I was conscious of. And now we have, I think, a stronger coaching staff. We have a more established program. Um, we have more BIPOC people who are in, in the program too. And so um, I think that's all made it a lot better. Um, but yeah, those were all things I was thinking about going into the summer. And then of course, right, Black Lives Matter, a lot of things happened really fast. And what happened was I had been, so I'd been working with Changing Women, which I imagine we'll talk about later, but we had been producing some sort of educational anti-racism, anti-marginalization, like content on the Instagram. And I had been doing a lot about the history of medicine and the history of science and the practices of science and medicine as being, you know, racist, um, because we like to pretend that they aren't, but they often are. And I sort of was like, you know, saw the model that we were using in terms of reaching people and that it was pretty successful. And I texted some of the people that were from my high school program and from the college program. And I said, hey, you know, what if we did this for water polo? Because it's a predominantly white sport. No one's talking about it. There's no information on it. And so we created this sort of 10 slide infographic that talked about the history of segregation um, and the history of racism and water polo. And that's everything from scientific racism that was like black people can't swim to like the, the ways in which, right, there are no pools in black communities um, still. And what that means today in terms of our representation, we've really only, we've literally only had four black people total and only one black woman on our national team ever period and the men's national team has been going since 1900 or so so big red flag there um and very few asian americans very few latinx folks but yeah and so um i knew a couple folks who were more on like the olympic professional circuit just through sports things and they agreed to repost our contact and it kind of just spread from there and people were really engaging with it and it was really awesome um and it was so wild to like yeah, like be in contact with like Olympians that I admired a lot that were, you know, reading and engaging with our stuff. And that sort of segued into um, both the development of the Alliance for Diversity and Equity in Water Polo, which is um, more of a coalition of BIPOC, queer, trans people um, who just care about sort of, you know, making the sport, making, making the sport more accessible and also providing community for folks. Um, and that's really big, like mentorship. So developing mentorship initiatives and things like that. And then also to getting appointed wildly to the USA Water Polo National Task Force on all of this. And so I run our sort of community input and research division of that. And so we're just working right now on fixing a lot of our membership data, because right now, um, it's really hard. Like, we didn't even have an option of pick more than one race until this past December, right? Um, so it's just really hard to gauge who is even here. Um, and then also to do some more targeted sort of programming that will help increase access and equity through looking at existing models and initiatives that already exist, including hopefully a pilot program in New Haven this summer. So I'm really excited about all of that. And we've really just gotten the ball rolling this semester. So, so excited to sort of really see the work start coming out and to see, um, to get our members' thoughts and to be able to understand what exactly we need to fix and how we can go about that. So 
it's really exciting. And yeah, the community that I've had of older water polo players of color has been awesome. Just absolutely awesome. I feel so much more validated. I feel so much more secure in both my choice to play water polo, but also in knowing that I'm not alone and that if anything happens, like I have these people that I can call on that are sort of outside this Yale bubble too, um, that are in my corner. And yeah, it's really great. I work a lot with the Harvard and the Brown coaches who are both um, men of color and they always joke like, you know, you're one of our kids too. Uh, So yeah, although I would probably get squished by any one of their actual kids who plays D1. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's so exciting. And I'm, you know, that, that that's so exciting that you're sort of like at the helm of increasing diversity and access to like by POC communities in terms of like collecting important data and like stats and like collecting the individual stories of people who play water polo in different communities and also like trying to I know, you know, in our in our um, pre-recording meeting, you talked about like, you know, talking about drowning safety and, and yeah. stuff like that. So very important work. Um, Oh, yeah. Sorry. Actually, I think, you know, a big part of it with water polo and swimming specifically is right. If you don't know how to shoot a basketball, like if you don't know how to like shoot hoops or like kick a soccer ball, like RIP, man. But, you know, right. At the end of the day, you you will still, you know, be a whole person. Right. But when people Mm -hmm. don't know how to swim, you end up with incredibly disparate numbers in drowning rates between black and brown communities and white communities. Um, and that's, that's a huge, huge problem because people don't know how to swim. They don't have any sort of water safety skills because those things have been denied to them, despite the really long and interesting history of African coastal aquatic communities. Um, and so that's where the public health thing comes in. And that's sort of why I am doing what I'm doing and why I'm on this particular task force is recognizing that like, in order to both campaign successfully in terms of advocacy, but also in terms of the the real outcomes of this, that there are very much lives at stake and lives that could very easily be not just um, prevented from ending, but also potentially right with new avenues and opportunities for learning new skills and meeting new people. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you I'm glad you added that because I knew it was like a big part of what you did as well. Um, <laughs> Thank you for nudging um, me. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, yeah, I also. Where Where do you want to go next? Do you want to go into like changing women, or you want to go into your research? Mm-hmm. We can close maybe with changing women because I think you're gonna gonna also nudge me into maybe saying some poem stuff. Um, but yeah, um, what do I do larger research wise? That's a good question. Mm -hmm. Kind of a lot. Um, In terms of the applied research that I do, I'm very much sort of interested in, right, how racism and systems of oppression more broadly can produce different health outcomes. So how can we think of racism as a public health problem? And that's a dialogue that we started to hear more now, right? Um, But thinking about everything from sort of like trauma and embodied stress, particularly intergenerational trauma and illness. um, And that's something that's been I think for me, really personal, because um, seeing the ways in which my grandmother's sort of trauma-based mental illness has played out on the rest of my family, um, and how much of that is carried on, and how much we remember, how much our bodies remember, and also just like literally every Black person in America that's ever existed, um, that's sort of very personal to me. So thinking about ways that we can use sort of community-centric programming to address these issues, to have like sort of sites of healing and resilience um, that are for and by the communities that are most greatly impacted by these sort of disparities in healthcare 
access in health outcomes um, is the applied work that I do. And so that looks at everything from right the water safety USA water polo to um, right now we're doing a very cool project that is developing an alternative policing model for the town of Hamden um, that allows for folks who um, particularly for folks experiencing like disability and or mental health mental illness related problems to not be um, for armed police to not be the ones who respond to that. So developing those kinds of systems. Um, to evaluating right other community health programs, um, which is what I've been doing for the past couple summers with the psych- uh, the People's Applied Research Center at Loyola Marymount University. So um, we really look at yeah, like we've had some cool state funding for communities to de- develop their own programs based on what they're seeing, um, you know, needs to be addressed. And so we give them resources, we give them sort of technical assistance, basically anything that they need for support, we do, and then we evaluate that too for the state. Um, and then my sort of personal interest in all of this that may or may not be my master's thesis is also looking at, is also looking at BTS, the K-pop, not K-pop genre-wise, but right, the, the Korean boy band, um, and looking at the ways in which they interact with both masculinity and gender, but also very specifically with like mental and physical health and how their company more broadly has developed a sort of, um, arts as healing model, uh, that, can be read in terms of certain anti-imperial, but also neoliberal contexts. So really interested just, yeah. I mean, you see on Twitter all the time how much that like BTS has helped people through both their lives in general, but especially through the pandemic. So being able to better understand that um, and how, right, like these expressions of like clearly sort of culture that like is is ingrained in particular types of ethnicity and identity um, can have these sort of ripple effects more broadly. Yeah, so that's all the applied work that I'm sort of doing that's just floating around. And then the historical that work that I do for HSHM is um, one, still looking at right the formations of some of these community models. Um, my HSHM thesis, if it ever gets done, is looking at Japanese American healthcare practitioners and how they develop um, culturally and linguistically specific practices within our communities. Um, that rely on things like informal networking and, uh, you know, language, both linguistics and body language, um, all of those kinds of things. And so looking at that, and then also uh, the work for Professor Carolyn Roberts, which I feel like the work that people hear about the most, which they should, because she's awesome. And, And so that work is on medicine and the slave trade. And so it's looking at how, and so our current book project that will be out scarily soon, um, is looking at the development of modern medicine as facilitated by the transatlantic slave trade. And so what I mean by this is, right, the roots of our current corporate pharmaceutical industry, because this is what I focus on, I do a lot of work with drugs and commodities, um, are actually rooted in the slave trade, both in terms of the access to materials and substances and knowledges to produce new medications and produce new pharmaceuticals, but also the sort of mass production of these pharmaceuticals to keep folks alive on the slave ships. So this is the first time that you're seeing this kind of widespread demand for large, um, for large scale production of these different, these different drugs, um, which are also being understood in a very specific kind of like, colonial medical tradition of like, this is how drugs work and this is how we can use them. 
And we have actually, right, several well-known pharmacies today, including GSK, who get their start doing this kind of work. And so that's my focus is um, looking at really specifically sort of who is, who, who are, who and what and how are these drugs being bought, sold, consumed, and understood? And more broadly, um, being able to track the sort of development of medicine from these the sort of like slave trade and like the slave castles in Africa all the way through landing in the United States and other destinations. So that's the book's focus. My focus within that tends to be pretty pharmaceutical based. And that is slowly expanding to be a more broad examination of imperialism, colonialism, and the development of drugs um, in Asia as well. So that will probably be my ERNM thesis is looking at sort of how we can connect all of those things together. Uh, so yeah, lots of medicine stuff. Um, wow. But yeah, yeah. So that's, that's what I look at. So really, it's just all sort of right, like, how do we end up where we are today? Um, with our particular understandings of drugs, especially the way that they impact different communities of color, both with the stigma around certain kinds of medications like mental health, but also um, the overprescription of medications to certain communities, the denial of like pain medication to black communities, all of that sort of looking at, right, those historical formations for how our healthcare system ends up the way it is today, and then how we can fix it or dismantle it. Dismantle is probably the better way to go. Do you do you also want to talk about your work with um, your masters as well? Like I know you're also covering like intergenerational Japanese American like Japanese healthcare practitioners as well. Oh yeah, so that's my actually my HSHM undergrad thesis. Yeah, oh. and somehow in two years I'm somehow turning out like three theses and a capstone. I say somehow because none of these have materialized yet. So yeah, so the HSHM thesis looks at, right, intergenerational Japanese-American healthcare practitioners and sort of, again, right, that that concept of sort of community-driven, community-specific healthcare. Um, my ERNM thesis will be looking at the drugs, mm-hmm. all the drugs. Um, <laughs> and then my master's thesis will either be a continuation of one of those projects or actually looking at sort of um, BTS COVID-19 pandemic related stuff, particularly their new album, which very explicitly addresses um, and the new works of the members in general, which very explicitly critique um, capitalism, critique sort of productivity culture and uh, discuss very clearly a lot of the different um, effects of the pandemic on on mental health, on physical health, things like that. So um, but also looking at the what, the work that the fans are doing, right, from opening hospitals to the 24-hour mental health hotline, like all of these things are just community and fan generated, which I think is really fascinating and also have done really powerful work in terms of mutual aid and uh, also just like literally saving people's lives. So, yeah. Wow. And then the USA Water Polo will probably be my U.S. health justice like capstone project. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely looking forward to dedicating like one or two episodes specifically to K-pop um, <laughs> on this podcast eventually. And I saw that you um, also, you published like an article recently on BTS, right? I did. I did. This is what I'm doing instead of my thesis. <laughs> <laughs> Writing articles yes. about BTS. Writing articles about BTS. Um, yeah, basically. So that work actually takes takes a look at a lot of what we've already talked about, right? In some interesting ways, looking at how the things that we were talking about at the very beginning of the podcast um, about how sort of 
disease and fashion and gender and race all interlock to form these ideas of Asian and Asian cis men in particular as being feminine, submissive, diseased, and foreign, and how all of those concepts concepts like interconnect through the ways that European science and medical discourse perpetuate racism. So you get you get that historically. And so then what does it mean for BTS to enter into that picture as a non as a clearly right like non-American group um, that speaks predominantly in Korean, but that is an insane threat to the Western music industry because they're putting out number one singles, they're putting out number one albums despite being discriminated against constantly, right? Within within the music industry, they get no radio play, very little airtime. They've had to fight very hard um, to get the kind of coverage that they're getting now. And and so again, it's right, all this community mobilization happening on the fans part, but right, how are, you know, Western media outlets, how are critics sort of leaning into this history of disease and fashion and gender to police or sort of discredit BTS? But also, how can the ways in which they are emphatically, emphatically not prescribing to these like Western, um, you know, very toxic ideas of masculinity, how can that be revolutionary or how can we look at that as a point of change and potential transformation? So, yeah, all of that really kind of. Yeah, all locks in there. But that was honestly just what I did one Saturday instead of my thesis. So, um, yeah, that's where we're at. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm definitely gonna read it this weekend. I'm very excited. I flagged it. So. Oh wow! Thank you. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's more that can definitely be done with that article um, that I didn't mention. I think, in particular, examining the ways in which they deliberately use Korean fashion was not something I completely got to there. But yeah. Uh, Happy reading. <laughs> I hope I hope it's coherent. Um, and it's been cool to sort of see that take a life of its own as well. Um, and it's been fun to write more long form things because I think, yeah, maybe we can segue into the last thing that I know you're maybe going to talk about, which is the more um, writing related stuff. Yeah. Thanks, Mariko, for the for the transition. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah. So I know. Also, a very big part of your identity is like writing, um, poetry, and I know you're very heavily involved in changing women and and juk songs, which you briefly talked about earlier this episode. Um, maybe just for the people who don't really know what both of these organizations are, can you tell people like what is changing women, what is juk songs, and and what are sort of your roles in both of these organizations? Absolutely, yeah. So Changing Women Collective is um, an Indigenous-founded, BIPOC arts and literary collective um, that seeks to amplify the voices of femme and non-binary BIPOC folks. So basically everybody but cis men, right? Um, And because particularly in arts and creative spaces, those stories are some of the most um, marginalized and it's difficult for those voices to be heard. And so it was founded by Kinsale Houston, who is, you know, a legendary poet in her own right and um, much better than I am. She writes for a living. Uh, and she she worked with some other folks, um, both internationally and also at Yale, to develop, uh, to develop the platform, which focuses, right, we have, um, you know, a social media presence that exists 
that are following there. And but our big thing is that we produce, um, you know, between three and four issues of our like digital journal online. Um, and journal is sort of a loose word for it because it really is, I think, more expansive than right a traditional academic journal or anything like that. That centers around a particular theme, and that theme you know, guides the, the the work that we do or focus on in that issue. So uh, our last theme was healing, which is right, very on brand for me. Um, and so I am the arts and intersectionality lead for Changing Women. So I look at sort of how can we foreground art or bring out art and creativity in fields where we're told that that shouldn't exist or that that um, is often obscured. And so that's really fun for me. Um, I'll have a series of features coming out looking at uh, BIPOC folks involved in food and in food, looking at sort of right the relationship between food and land and healing and how um, arts and creativity, particularly in the time of COVID, are, you know, producing a lot of that kind of work. So stay tuned for that. TBD on when, uh, but that's happening. So that's Changing Women. And there are just so many cool people involved in Changing Women who do so many awesome things. Um, and then Juke Songs is Yale's Asian American spoken word group that was founded back in the 80s to just give, yeah, Asian American folks a chance to talk about and share their stories with each other and with the world. And so we perform, we have shows twice a year and we also collaborate with other organizations to put on different performances and other opportunities through that. Great. Thank you. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think back back in high school, I also was a very big like poetry writer. It's kind of like it's it's like dwindled down since I've been at Yale, but I'm really you looking to get JS. more involved. Yeah, yeah. Join us. We have a meeting Sunday. I'm gonna I'm gonna promote. You should do it. But anyway, <laughs> continuing. Yes. But um yeah, I think I'm always interested to ask people like what poetry does for them um Mm -hmm. and so yeah like for you like what does poetry as a platform as a media as a medium mean to you like what themes and experiences do you usually write about like what do you get out of poetry yeah absolutely um well I think my start into more poetry and writing stuff was really rooted in just the fact that I like to talk a lot and I still talk a lot. Um, most of like the work that I do is honestly, ta- I mean, I'm talking now, right? So, um, so I think spoken word, which is a big part of, especially like the black tradition, right? Is, is really ingrained into my poetry. Juke songs is a spoken word group, right? We, we perform. Um, that's what we do. And so I think Part of that is, right, calling upon that tradition and being connected to that tradition. But I think for me, poetry has always been a way for me to sort of unpack and understand myself in a larger context in the world around me. And it it really has been the main method through which I have really just sat with and figured out who I am, um, identity-wise, in terms of, I think, everything from, you know, intergenerational trauma, which... I still write about, but like was a big focus of my writing for a couple of years to um, things like queerness and healing, I think all are really rooted in sort of poetry. And it's always just been a way to sort of express things in through a medium that isn't as confined to sort of the like structure of prose. Um, 
which I struggle with a little bit more. So doing long form writing, like the BTS article is like unusual for me um, just because, yeah, I've, I think poetry, you know, has that sort of more flexible, um, more flexible format sometimes. And I also think a big thing is the way that poetry uses metaphor and imagery is something that I've always really loved. I think I really like thinking about things as other things, for lack of a better word. Um, so, or lack of a better way to put it. So that's definitely been something I've really enjoyed about poetry as well as like that sort of sensory element of being able to really describe what's going on around you when it's so hard often to articulate our experiences when right we haven't when our when our experiences and our voices are not being heard. Yeah, and I know you've definitely written a lot of pieces that are for alliances, you know, outside of changing women and joke songs. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I'll definitely put links to some of your works if you're okay with <laughs> it and like also to your BTS, BTS article. But oh my goodness. Mariko, would you be able to share a poem of yours that you'd like to, you know, you you like to tell the listeners about? Sure, sure, sure. Yes. Okay, let me get us Hang on, let me pull it up here. Um so this was a poem that I originally wrote for our annual collaboration, the Duke Song, like our annual collaboration with Negative Space, which is the um, Yale Asian American Oral History Project. And so that's where it comes from. But um, it's not the happiest poem I've ever written, but it's, it's of a length that I think would work. So here we go. My first homeland will always be the sharp corners of my mother's arms. I'm too bony to hold you, she would always say, as if love isn't always uncomfortable, as if home wasn't the cracked white porcelain shattered on our kitchen floor, as if I was the heaviest thing her arms had to hold. How do you long for something you've never known? My bones and sinew have never stopped playing house, the kind of game that says pretend you are women, pretend you are exotic, pretend you are unknown, pretend you're not enough, that only you are whole because you mean nothing at all, forget that the calluses on your wrists and hands sing with the weight of your ancestor. It was only recently that I realized that the curves of my face were far more than the confines of this domestic imagination. I may be pushed out of it with every thrust of whiteness curled around my ivory teeth, but my body is a home that I never want to leave. They forced us on ships, but they did not know they were waves, and I can still taste the salt water in my eyes with every trip out of Los Angeles. It's not fair, he said, to ask me to live there, as if my black body could breathe enough to swim anywhere else, as if we weren't already underwater as if the only cure to when my slanted eyes are called disease isn't radiating from the concrete in little Tokyo, as if home wasn't a person that I needed to leave. Yay! That was so good. Monica, why are you so cool? <laughs> You're this is so just very cool. funny because I'm not a cool person at all. I'm just, a, I'm just, I think Lillian Hua, shout out to Lillian. Hi, Lillian. Um, Lillian. Said it best when she was like, you know, everyone thinks you're really intimidating, but really you're just a BTS army. And I think that's a pretty accurate way to describe myself. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Shout out to Lillian. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. Hey, Lillian. Thank you so much for sharing, Mariko. That was so great. Um, And 
you know, we definitely talked about a lot today in this episode, a lot about yourself and who you are. Um, I'm sure there are uh, listeners who are listening to this episode and they're like, Mariko's so cool. Like, I want to reach out to her, ask her questions, continue Ah. the conversation. So if people are interested in reaching out to you, how, how, where can they find you? You know, plug your social media. Also, like, if you have upcoming articles, projects, Mm -hmm. events, feel free to plug everything. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, first of all, I love chatting with people about any of the things that are mentioned here. So please, yeah, feel free to hit me up. I am just a regular person trapped in my apartment like the rest of us. So I welcome, you know, any conversations about any of this. Um, I would say uh, my Instagram handle, uh, which is just Mariko Rooks, no no spaces, no, no, any, nothing fancy there. Um, but uh, I also assume you'll probably link that in. Is probably the best place to reach me on a daily basis. Uh, you can also feel free to email me at the email that um, you know we'll also link in the podcast. Uh, either either of those ways uh, is a pretty good way to reach me. I would say Instagram is better just because Yale sends us a lot of emails. Um, and then in terms of things that are coming up, ooh, well we're gonna have a Juke Song show at some point soon, so stay tuned for that. And then also, yes, at some point, probably by the end of March or early April, um, this series for changing women on sort of food and healing will get dropped. So please give all the love to the people who are featured in that and support their organizations. They're so cool. And I can't wait for everyone to read about all the amazing work that they're doing. Um, Yeah, other than that, I don't think I have much coming out that's at least planned until my sort of thesis stuff starts getting released and my USA Water Polo stuff starts getting released, which will be sometime in the summer. Um, But yeah, and if you want to read more about my undergraduate research or my undergraduate research with Professor Roberts, um, there was a lovely cover that was done this past summer through the Yale Symposia, which is the magazine for the Yale Undergraduate Research Journal. Um, by the amazing Mei Chen. And that is something we can link there too if you want to learn more about that. Uh, but yeah, and also Professor Roberts has an interview on CNN coming up. So stay tuned for that because that's bound to be awesome. So, but yeah, I think the main thing is, you know, if I have to plug anything though, it's really like there are a lot of community organizations and a lot of folks doing great work out there that can use a lot of support right now. So please, 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 if you have the means and the capacity, um, you know, show up, show out for people, um, engage in reparations, engage in strategic redistributing of funds and mutual aid. Um, you know, there there are a lot of folks that are out there who who are doing the work and, you know, it really needs to be it needs to be amplified and it needs to be supported. Amazing. Thank you so much, Mariko. I'm going to definitely link um, all of the things you just said in <laughs> the episode description so people can, you know, you know, access those. Um, yeah, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. I love talking to you. It was so much fun. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is this is such a privilege and this is such a great podcast. You're doing so much cool stuff. And I, yeah, can't wait to see what you do next. 
Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Homecoming Podcast with Mariko. If you like this episode, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Homecoming Pod. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platforms and leave us five stars and a positive review on iTunes. I will see you all next Saturday with part one of my interview with Sydney G. And they are going to talk about their experiences growing up in their hometown, mental health, their queer and trans identities, invisible disabilities, and more. Season two of Homecoming ends at the end of March. So we've just got three more episodes left. Thank you all for sticking around and I will see you next week.